This podcast is brought to you by BMJ Best Practice. BMJ Best Practice offers evidence-based, continually updated and practical knowledge that will help you make better clinical decisions. Hello and welcome to this week's BMJ Best Practice podcast on COVID-19. Kieran Walsh is my name. I'm Clinical Director at BMJ. In this week's podcast, we're going to focus on some important and topical issues related to vaccination, remdesivir and comorbidities. To tell us how the guidelines can help with these issues, we have on the line Emma Scott, Section Editor, and Dr. Matt Castledon, Section Editor and GP, who both work on BMJ Best Practice and BMJ Learning. So to start with Matt and vaccinations in the first instance, Matt, the the rollout of the UK COVID-19 vaccination program is is a big challenge for clinicians working in primary care and elsewhere. What are the most important sources of practical guidance for clinicians in the UK who, who are involved in delivering the program? Firstly, Public Health England have published a COVID-19 vaccination uh, information for healthcare practitioners document that collects much of the practical guidance at the sort of clinical level around delivering the vaccination um, uh, and so put it together all in the same document. They've also published uh, a Green Book chapter on COVID-19 vaccination, uh, which is a really important resource for health professionals and goes into quite a lot of detail um, around uh, COVID-19 vaccination. We've signposted users to both of these resources in a recent update on the COVID-19 in primary care learning module, but those are probably the, the two most important documents for clinicians at the at the sharp end, as it were, to, to look at. Okay, great. Thank you. And you mentioned the Green Book. I'm sure most paediatricians and GPs would probably know about the Green Book, but probably not everybody knows about it. Tell us what the Green Book is. Yes, it's um, an online resource. Now it's actually neither green nor a book. Uh, Historically, it it was, but it's now all all gone online. Uh, It's published by Public Health England, um, and it has detailed information on, on all aspects of UK vaccination practice uh, and has a, a section on vaccinations broken down on a disease by disease basis. Uh, and although it's published by Public Health England, it a- applies across all of the UK devolved administrations. So yes, as you say, people involved with vaccination already in any way in the UK will probably know about it, um, but it's quite significant um, that a chapter on COVID-19 you know, has been published even provisionally before all the vaccines were approved. Great, thank you. I can remember when it was green and and a book, and it was a very reliable source. Um, so, considering all these resources together, um, are there any important general messages for clinicians who might be involved in the vaccination program? The Public Health England guidance makes it quite explicit um, that at least in the initial stages. The vaccination program is 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 likely to be built on two vaccines specifically. Uh, so, although I think there's you know, well over a hundred in various stages of development, the focus really is on two vaccines, which most people will know: the Pfizer-BioNTech mRNA vaccine, and it covers that in the, in a fair amount of details. You might expect as the only vaccine currently approved. 
but it also provides advice relating to the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine. Uh, there's a sort of an assumption there that approval will be due soon, which which is obviously what we're anticipating um, in the near future. And it's in the final stages, uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine of evaluation by the MHRA. So at the time we're speaking now, it's not approved. But uh, if you look at these PHE documents, there's a presumption there that it will be soon and, and it will be a big part of the vaccination programme. And although there are sort of well-known differences between these vaccines, how they work, how they're made, how they're stored and transported, it also makes the point, Public Health England does across these documents, that there are you know, significant similarities too, that they're both administered as a two-dose schedule and that they both use the coronavirus spike protein uh, as the antigen to stimulate host immunity. So there's a, a sort of similarity in how they work as well. Okay, thank you. And do the similarities and differences have practical implications? Yes, I mean, there's, there's a, a an interesting section in this guidance concerning vaccine interchangeability, for example, where we're told there's no data concerning interchangeability and we're advised that, that people are strongly recommended to get two doses of the same vaccine if at all possible. But because they both use the spike protein as an antigen, it's expected that in practice, a second dose of a different vaccine will boost the effect of the first. So that for individuals who started the vaccine schedule and attend for a second dose at a site where the same vaccine is not available or where the first product received is unknown, the guidance is clear that it's reasonable to offer a single dose of the locally available product, even if it's a different one. And in fact, this is the preferred option for individuals who are at high risk of COVID-19 or if it's felt that the individual is unlikely to attend again. Okay, thank you. Tell us about adverse reactions and contraindications of, to the vaccines. The guidance mentions that local reactions at the injection sites were found to be fairly common uh, for both of these vaccines. So essentially that's mild pain and tenderness near the injection site. It goes into a bit more detail about the uh, Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, stating that tiredness headache, muscle aches, chills, joint pain were all fairly common, a a raised temperature and maybe over 10%, so um, a little bit lower down the list. It also incorporates the recent MHRA, Medicines Health and Regulatory Authority advice about using or not using the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine for anyone with a history of anaphylaxis to a vaccine, medicine or food. And that's following the sort of well-publicised reports that, that two or three individuals um, had anaphylaxis during the first day of vaccination in the UK uh, last week. So that's in there as well. And then it, it covers pregnant women, stating there's currently available data, do not indicate any safety concerns, but there is insufficient evidence to recommend it. So it's not recommended for pregnant women or breastfeeding women. It covers people with immunosuppression or HIV, where these vaccines are uh, inactivated, they're recommended essentially in that group, but people should be aware that in that situation, you may not generate a full antibody response um, to the vaccine. Uh, although at the moment, they, they're unable to advise on any you know, additional doses or changes in the schedule. Okay. Thank you. That's very clear. And let's move on to the all-important issue of vaccine eligibility and prioritisation. What's the current state of play in, in that regard? 
the Green Book uh, chapter has has detail on that, uh, and it sets out the uh, Joint Committee of Vaccination Immunisation recommendations. That's the JCVI. Again, people who already do vaccination will know all about that. And these are recommendations for prioritising people at risk. And JCVI ranked the eligible groups according to risk, largely based on prevention of COVID-19 specific mortality. So in the first priority group, there are residents in a care home um, for older people uh, and staff working in care homes. The sort of second priority group is everyone over the age of 80 and in the same group are frontline health and social care workers. And then really after that, there's a, a series of priority groups, there's nine in total, um, descending uh, in descending order of age with clinically extremely vulnerable individuals sort of coming about halfway down the list, essentially, regardless of their age. But other than that, it's fairly closely based on age up to the age of 50. So it's anticipated that at the end of the vaccination program, everyone over the age of 50 in the UK will have been vaccinated. Okay, thank you. Moving on from vaccination to treatment, um, tell us about any recent important changes in recommendations for treatment of COVID-19. Yes, within the last few weeks, uh, again, many people will be aware the WHO changed their guidance around the use of uh, remdesivir, which is the antiviral uh, that initially showed a good deal of of promise. Um, They published a a systematic review on the drug, and that included the result of their solidarity trial, which covers a range of different um, agents. It's now essentially gone against remdesivir in hospitalised patients uh, or any patients with COVID-19, regardless of disease severity. So that's a a, a bit of a a turnaround from the previous guidance, and it's opened up international differences. So in the UK, the BMJ has updated its living guideline on on remdesivir to fall in line with, with WHO guidance. We no longer list it in the main treatment section of the of the BMJ best practice topic. But in the US, guidelines still support its use in, in some patient groups, American College of Physicians uh, and Infectious Disease Society of America, you know, still include it as, as, as recommended for certain groups of hospitalized patients. That's the current situation. Okay, thank you very much, Matt. That's, that's really helpful. Uh, let's move on to Emma and coexisting conditions in the context of COVID-19. Um, Emma, guidelines and recommendations on a variety of different conditions are being updated. One of these is on COPD. Can you tell us about this? Uh, Yes, um, GOLD, who are the Global Initiative for Chronic Obstructive Lung Disease, um, they've included a whole chapter on the management of COVID-19 in their recently published uh, Global Strategy for 2021. Um, Some of the key points include continuing to recommend that patients with COPD keep taking their oral and inhaled uh, respiratory medication as directed. There's, There's no evidence to recommend avoiding them during the pandemic. Um, They recommend that during periods of high COVID-19 prevalence, spirometry is restricted to patients requiring urgent tests for diagnosis or to assess lung function prior to any interventional procedures. Um, And they advise that patients try to keep active and in contact with friends and family. Shielding shouldn't lead to isolation and inactivity. 
patients should also keep an adequate supply of medications and they should be encouraged to use uh, reputable sources for clinical information on COVID-19. Okay, thank you. And what about patients with COPD who then become un, un, unwell or experience an exacerbation, say? Yeah, um, Gold recommend that patients with COPD who present with uh, any new or worsening respiratory symptoms, fever and any other COVID-related symptoms, they should have a test for COVID-19 infection, even if those symptoms are mild. And any patients with COPD who have COVID-19 will be treated the same as any other COVID-19 patient. Okay, thank you. And and last month, we learned that people with learning disabilities may be more at risk from COVID-19. Can, can you tell us more about this? Yes, uh, Public Health England reported that people with learning difficulties were three times more likely to die from COVID-19 than the general population and that there was an even greater risk uh, in younger age groups with learning difficulties. There are some guidelines for mitigating the risk. It's recommended that people with learning difficulties have a handheld summary of their medical information and preferences. This is to support staff in caring for them if they're admitted to hospital. Community teams are encouraged to work with people with learning difficulties in their care and their families to develop COVID-19 care plans that should include things such as any possible issues associated with diagnostic overshadowing, communication needs, any specialist support and any end of life or do not attempt uh, resuscitation discussions. Strict social distancing should be followed and community services should use tele and video conferencing to contact patients and carers where appropriate. And there have since been calls in the UK to give those with learning difficulties uh, high priority access to the COVID-19 vaccines. Okay, thank you. And and last question about obesity. The American Academy of Pediatrics has published guidance on, on the management of obesity. And tell us about this in the context of COVID-19. Yeah, um, the American Academy of Pediatrics um, advises that children and adolescents with obesity, like adults with obesity, are at increased risk for COVID-19 infection. Um, however, they are also at risk for worsening of obesity during the pandemic. This is due to things like reduced physical activity, disrupted routines, disrupted sleep, increased screen time and um, increased access to unhealthy snacks uh, and less appropriately portioned meals and also increased stress. The AAP advises that all patients should be assessed for the onset of obesity during the pandemic and they also advise that treatment for obesity and related comorbidities uh, shouldn't be delayed. Okay. Thank you very much, Emma, and and also Matt. And thanks to you all for listening. We hope this has been helpful, and we hope you'll be able to put what you've learned into action to better diagnose and manage affected patients. If you want to find out more, click the link in the podcast to sign into BMJ Best Practice and look at the content on this and other relevant diseases. Thank you once again.